I, I don't see any condition throughout the life of Jesus, especially where correctness or accuracy in belief is a condition for, for love, for salvation, if you want to go there, for, for welcoming into a community. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Each week we attempt to dismantle an issue that has the potential to be problematic within the church by dialoguing with a guest that has insight or experience with that subject. We won't always agree, but we won't argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. Our guest this week is Brandon Eloy. Brandon is a process transformation specialist from Boston, Massachusetts, where he and his wife live. He's lived there since 2010 and serves as leaders in worship, community groups, and neighborhood outreach in their church. Brandon, welcome to The Dismantle. Appreciate it, Mitch. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on, dude. It's been a while since we caught up. Yeah, for sure. Several years. Yeah, but I'm excited for the topic that we're going to get into today. Before we dive in there, Brandon, how did you get introduced to church and to faith? What's some of your religious background? Sure. So I grew up in a pretty pretty classic story. My, both my parents are believers, um, but my, my family is actually from Brazil. So I grew up in a Brazilian Pentecostal church on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which is not something people would typically expect. It was a, a fairly large church, especially as I got older, a pretty large community of Brazilian believers in that area. So yeah, I grew up in that, in that setting, learned Went to Sunday school all growing up. My mom was my Sunday school teacher, which um, is a different topic for a different day, I guess. <laughs> I feel you there. I had that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us might might have uh, great stories and great scars from those times. But uh, when we got to when I got to high school, my family actually uh, made the decision to move on from that church. We still stayed in the same area, but we moved to uh, an American church the first time in my life. So. It was the first time I ever began hearing sermons in English, which was the language I grew up speaking and learning. So that was quite a transition. We also transitioned to a black church, traditionally black church that was over a hundred years old by the time we had joined. So it was particularly interesting to be one of the few uh, non-black families in that church which initially came with quite a bit of tension, as you could probably imagine in any sort of setting where a minority group is introduced. Sure. But it ended up being a really fruitful time in our family's lives. My dad became a preacher and a minister through that church. And once I finished high school, went to college. Uh, and then lastly, when, while I was in college, my brother moved home from Lexington, Kentucky. He had married a girl from there. And he moved home and moved to our hometown to start a church in the city that we grew up in. So from 2011 till about 2015, I was a part of that team helping start up that new church in our hometown with a lot of our old friends trying to reach out, particularly to some individuals that we had grown up with, but weren't necessarily involved with faith anymore in their lives. That was the mission field we felt called to at the time. So did that for about four years. Then once I got married, my wife and I moved to Boston and we joined a church in the city as well. So yeah, that's kind of the the church history, um, I guess, more personally and more individually over the last five years, I'd say. So leading up to 
transitioning away from that startup and into marriage and into the city of Boston. I really feel like God's been moving quite a bit in my life. And there's a a particularly popular term out there now called deconstruction. But I'd say over the last five years, I've definitely gone through my own version of deconstruction and rebuilding. One of my favorite authors throughout this time has been Brian Zond. And what he calls this period is going from water to wine. So this idea of really breaking down a lot of the beliefs and, and structures and what you felt were absolute truths growing up in your faith, breaking those down and, and rebuilding them to something that you could call yours. Um, something that is richer, a little bit deeper, in my opinion, has set me up for a uh, more longevity and more uh, perseverance in the faith. So I've been really thankful for this experience. Um, it's been difficult, but it's been incredibly rewarding. That's awesome, man. And thank you so much for sharing that. So our Buckminster Fuller is quoted by saying, tension is the great integrity. And what he means by that is that within struggle, there's an honor and a virtue that cannot be accomplished any other way. And Brandon, as we look around in our world today, tension is everywhere from our politics to racial conversations, our schools and our religious institutions. And I think that some of the reason for that and those tensions are because of our cultures that we create. Brandon, talk to me about the culture that the church creates. Yeah, I, I think when we talk about the culture that church creates, I think there's two sides that I like to look at it from. And, and I, I guess I use it as a, a disclaimer quite a bit recently in conversations with people. I, I, I do have a lot of thoughts about the church and the church's current state in our world today that are, I would call them constructive, some would call them negative, but I, I do have a lot of thoughts and ideas that are deep and, and difficult. But I also say that at this point in my faith, I've never been more hopeful and, and more sure that the church on earth is the hope of this world. And so I, I always like to make sure that people, particularly believers, understand that, that while when I, when we talk, it may come off as me trying to be particularly negative or being critical just for the sake of being critical. I, I like to frame the idea that I'm doing this because in my opinion, I, I really, really love the church and I want to see it thrive so deeply because I believe that this is the hope that, that God has sent for the world. So I, I like to look at it in, in two different ways when we talk about the culture that the church builds. I think there are the goals of the culture that we want to build, especially someone like you that's familiar with church leadership um, you have some ideas of what you want your culture to be, but then there's the reality and what you're actually building and whether that's conscious or uh, an unconscious action that's taken they're, they're, They don't often, they don't often coincide what you're desiring and what actually happens. So I'll say maybe it's just some summary points here, but I think the church, if you were to ask anybody, particularly in church leadership, they'd say that they would desire to welcome all people. Um, I've heard this quote quite a bit, the people, the church wants to make people feel like they belong before they believe, um, which I, I think is a, a really healthy, healthy goal, a healthy idea and something that we should strive towards. But I think ultimately what happens is we, we tend to get impatient with that approach. We want people to feel welcomed and to belong before they believe. But if they don't believe for a certain amount of time, we get impatient. We want them to make decisions. We want them to match what we're believing. And it feels at times that ultimately our aim as a church is to convince people. We're trying to 
prove to people that maybe we say are are non-believers. We're trying to prove to them that our way of living is right. And if they don't see that, then they're being blind to it. And so there's there's a strange tension, I think, already there where we want people to feel welcome, but the things that would introduce tension from their perspective make us uncomfortable, make us impatient. And we don't necessarily like to keep interacting with those types of relationships. So yeah, I, I'd say the church aims for welcoming and being open, but can often stifle anything that feels too slow for themselves. What about you? What do you think? I think that's highly interesting that we have this subliminal time frame when it comes to living relationally, living missionally. Yeah, my mind's still kind of tracking with that. Have you had any experience with that as far as the church not okay with a certain time frame as far as discipleship, as far as conversion, things like that? I, I don't know if I would have a particular example of that time frame, but I'd say that's that tends to be an underlying, an underlying almost I don't know what an undercurrent of of how we in, even as believers interact with one another. I think what tends to happen with churches, particularly those that that have communities where they have a lot of believers that that came and started to join their church already as believers, it you you tend to almost become complacent and not on purpose. Of course, I don't think anyone's doing it on purpose, but you almost start to take for granted the journeys that all those people have taken to get to where their faith is by the time you know them, that you don't realize that you're not necessarily developing a pattern, developing a structure and a space for people that are not as mature, are not as ready to stand on convictions as others to journey through their own process. And so it, it can obviously be frustrating. I mean, we always want to, as humans, we want to do something and then see the effect of it as quickly as possible. I mean, there's probably some science out there, but it's probably why diets are so hard to follow because one salad doesn't make you skinny. One workout doesn't make you a bodybuilder. A journey, it's a constant process where we have to keep working at it slowly. And so when you're witnessing someone that might be going through that journey at the early stages, you're so far removed from ever experiencing that yourself, whether it was a long time ago, or you just haven't, what, what tends to be true for Christians today is you just don't really know that many non-Christians that they're going through this early stage and you don't understand what your role is in bringing them along and supporting them. And you don't really understand why maybe certain convictions are taking so long to find a home in their hearts. So um, I, I don't think it's on purpose, but I, yeah, I think it's just the lack of patience, a lack of perseverance that we tend to have when people's journeys don't look exactly like ours. I think that's true in a lot of different cultures. Now it's pretty apparent looking at the world and I use world in air quotes, right? Uh, but Let's let's say for the sake of this discussion that the world means anything other than the church culture, that they have their own culture that they create, correct? Absolutely. Now, what would you say the major difference in those two cultures would be, and why do you think that they collide so much? Maybe this might be surprising, but I, I don't see a ton of difference 
at all. I think when, especially if we try to delineate the church versus anything that's non-church, I think that's how you, how you phrased it. But I think every culture, if you were to ask them or any sort of influencer, what they're trying to, to build in terms of culture, they want outsiders to feel included. They want to be hospitable. They want to be kind and gracious. They want to stand for justice. They want to pursue things they're passionate about, right? Like if I just said all those words, you don't know if I'm talking about a gym or a church. Like there's, I think it's universal, but I think the, if you had to crystallize the difference, I'd say the church and the world, in, again, in air quotes, they just have different faces of truth. I think each culture has their own set of quote unquote facts and absolute truths or at least what they feel is an absolute truth, which sounds a lot like politics today, right? Like we have, we have a cycle going on where facts are presented and then a different news source might present opposing facts. And we don't really know what the fact is. And so depending on where you fall on a spectrum, you accept certain facts and you disregard others. And I think that that tends to be in, at least in my opinion, the main difference between the church and the world. And I don't think, at least I am not as part of the church. I'm not super proud of that. I think we can differentiate ourselves quite a bit more. I think we could uh, provide something different than what the world has to offer. But what tends to be the difference now is all that separates us is what we believe, not necessarily the culture that we've built. And I think in some ways, even what in a way that the church has, has been negatively influenced by the world. And I don't think this is unique to our generation, but we've had this, this sense of individual expression and individual freedom will be more important than the good of others. And in the church today, I think we have this sense where we are, we as believers are still pursuing our own individual successes, our own individual goals. We just happen to sing on Sundays together. And we're not forsaking ourselves for the good of the other in the same way that our world today preaches uh, self-realization, finding your identity and being your true self and being free from what everyone else has to impose on you. I unfortunately don't think that the church has done a great job historically at, at not falling prey to that as well. I think we've, we've succumbed to it and we have, we have people in the church. We have the church, even churches as whole that are preaching uh, a gospel of collecting more and differentiating yourself in terms of success and, and numbers that I don't think comes from the scriptures. I think that comes from our world. And I'm, I'm sad that we've become too much like them. Now, you mentioned before that perhaps the culture is very similar, but what differentiates us is the belief factor. And I think one of the largest and most discussed cultural differences, especially when it comes down to belief with the church and secular culture, is the topic of homosexuality. Now, I think it's important that we make a distinction. You are a heterosexual married male to a heterosexual woman, but you guys live in Boston's gay community. Talk to me a little bit about that choice and some of what you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure, yeah. So, uh, so you and I, Joey, when we met... Uh, I was working for uh, an urban mission uh, organization here in the city of Boston. And at, at that point in my life and in my faith 
journey, I'll call it. I felt like God was really changing quite a few things in me. And, and what we just talked about, this idea of churches pursuing um, their own glory, their own successes. I, I speak from experience. That that's what I wanted. As someone who was part of church leadership at the time, I wanted to lead a church to get hundreds of people coming every week. Like I saw that as success. And so when I worked for this organization, I God was really teaching me the the nuances and the the difficulty, but also the fruit that's possible in a very grounded faith, I'll call it a faith that is very incarnational, again, to use a a Christian term. But when I say that, I'm just saying that a faith that's not just an idea or building uh, a gathering of people, but a faith that is exemplified and lived out every day in your neighborhoods, in near where you work and with the the people around you. And so when, when my wife and I got married, we knew that we were going to be living in Boston. We realized that the church that we helped start on the Cape is about an hour away. We were driving an hour to be a part of a Christian community. And we realized before we got married that, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea. Um, maybe this isn't great for us, particularly being newly married. So we prioritized uh, geography when we were looking for new churches. Our, our list of priorities right at the top was location, which is interesting because I think we would tend to think about joining a church by what they believe and if they align with what we believe. But at, at least at the time, the number one thing was how close are they to our house? And so we, we went through a, a process of trying to find churches and and we ended up at this church in here in Boston. It's called the South End. It's a, a neighborhood in the city that's known for uh, its gay population. We have a, a pride week here in the city every summer. After services on Sunday mornings, you'll you'll walk around the South End and the, the rainbow flags are everywhere and there's restaurants are doing crazy events and promotions for, for pride week. And so we, we really wanted to be local. We wanted to be a part of a church that was close to home because mainly what we wanted to do as, as the church is, we wanted to engage culture. Uh, I think of Jeremiah 29. We, we always hear the verse of, I know, I know the plans I have for you, plans for hope in the future. And, and that's a great verse and I love it. But one that I, I love even more is just a few verses before it when, it when it says that, pray for your city, for if it prospers, then you prosper. And that, that verse, particularly starting at my time in, at this ministry in Dorchester, it, it really started to move in me because I wanted to, not just save my city. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to engage it. I didn't want to just be a part of a Christian corner. I wanted to understand the, I wanted to understand who my city even was and, and feel pain, the pains that they feel and, and celebrate what they celebrate. And so we really wanted to be engaging culture in this way that, that we hadn't been exposed to before. And we wanted to learn. We wanted to be a part of something new something challenging, but ultimately something as basic as it might sound, close to home. Now, it's no secret the struggle that church has with the gay community. How have you seen, maybe it's your church, but maybe just the church as a larger institution serve the gay community and be a part of the gay community? Yeah, so 
like you said earlier, I, I'm a heterosexual male married to a heterosexual female. When we talk about skin in the game, right? Like I, I can't claim that I have a ton, but at least from my perspective, and if maybe listeners disagree or maybe you disagree or have different experiences, but I'd say as a whole, our reputation is not very good. I come from an evangelical background and at least from, from this side, when I look back in, in certain ways that, that we've treated them, how we've interacted with them, how we've, the only word I can think of is hostile. It's, it, it's tended to be a pattern in my experience where when that topic is brought up, when individuals are outed, whether it's by themselves or through rumors, that the one thing that rises up from Christian community towards that person it's not hospitality. It's not grace. It's not care. It's hostility. Uh, people are looked at differently. They're less, less invited to parties. They're excluded. And we say that we love them, but at least from what I think, and if maybe you have a different perspective or you can echo it, it doesn't seem like we are doing a great job at keeping them involved and loving them consistently once we know something about them like this. Do you think that the struggle of that involvement and, and that next step as far as inclusion boils down to, like you said before, our belief system, or do you think it's something else? Yeah, man, that's, that's a good one. I, I, I probably lean towards, yes, that it, it, it's, it comes down to the belief system. I think when we, at least when I evaluate the church today from my experiences, and again, I I am part of the church. I, I love the church dearly. I serve in my church, but I, I do think we have, we tend to have an obsession about being right, being correct, having our, every single point and sub point of our theology on point, locked down, impenetrable, impervious to any sort of critique. And I think that that tendency towards making sure you're right can quickly lead you to forget how to love. When you have disagreements with people, particularly theological disagreements, something that maybe is even more important to, to that other party as it, more than it is to you. They, feel, they almost feel personal offense that you don't believe what they believe about it. And your relationship from there forward is no longer about being a brother or a sister. It's about, well, can that person now convince me of their viewpoint? It, it, it becomes an, uh, an exchange relationship, becomes trans yeah, a very transactional relationship where that person now sees you not as a brother, as a friend or as a sister, but as a target, as, as a goal that they can accomplish and be happy that, that they are steady in their beliefs and their convictions. So I think that tendency of being right and I think it's a, a whole different conversation if you want to get into it of what people's viewpoints are in regards to homosexuality and, and being a believer, particularly following Jesus actively. I, I think whether there's one correct answer or not, uh, I don't think the correctness should trump how we care for those people. I, I don't see any condition throughout the life of Jesus, especially but all throughout scripture where correctness or um, accuracy in belief 
is a condition for for love, for salvation, if you want to go there, for for welcoming into a community. All those things are often based on nothing that that person can provide to that community, but solely on who they are. Um, and I, I think we try to replicate that a bit more. Yeah, yeah, we might have a few people that are close to us that disagree with us on quite a few issues, but I think we could love them a bit better. What, what do you think people are afraid of if they're wrong? Like, why, why is it such a, a, an issue to be wrong? That's a, that's a great question, man. I do not have an answer there, but that's a question that I'm, I ask myself regularly and not just not even from a, a position or a platform where I've passed it and I see it in other people. Like I even have that idea about myself. Like you, you work, you're out in the workforce just as I am, right? Like we work, I at least work for a, a big financial company and even in meetings where maybe something that I thought was correct about our business is proven to be incorrect, man, I get really shy. I get really nervous. I don't want to disclose that I was wrong about that idea or about that fact. I just think we all have that tendency of there's this innate fear in us of being exposed of not, not fully getting it. And I think when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to the kingdom of God, as we see it, maybe, maybe we have this fear that being incorrect on one point or another is is damning is condemning entirely of our souls and so we we obsess so much about knowing as much theology as we can and developing our framework that we don't actually do what the scriptures tell us to do we're we've become we've made the faith something that is very heady something that's a head knowledge and we want to know it in and out but have we actually let it transform us? And I think as, as humans that we are driven by accomplishment, we're driven by getting things done. Maybe it's easier to get things right, or at least try to get things right, than it is to let the gospel transform you. I think one of them is tends to be harder than the other. And so maybe we're choosing the easy route. Maybe that maybe it is shown as a fear, but that fear is just us taking this life of following Jesus and thinking, well, if only I accumulate enough knowledge, then I'll be secure. Then my faith will be good to go. I don't think he calls us to get it all sorted out. I think he calls us to follow. And that includes journeys into areas and into places that you've never known before and you're going to learn about or that are challenging to you. But yeah, I mean, even that's, I'm speaking, maybe I'm just rambling at this point, but even from like personal relationships that I have, I have individuals, close, dear friends of mine that when certain dis- theological disagreements have been exposed that we have with one another, they've treated me differently ever since. And issues and ideas that, like I said earlier, I just don't think they're as imp- those issues are as important to me as they seem to be to my friends. But those friends are set on convincing me that I'm wrong again from experience. And this is not particular about that, the gay community conversation, but from my experience, when the relationship becomes about, okay, I need to convince this person that they're wrong. That friendship is not very fun, man. It's, it hasn't been good ever since. So those are my ramble thoughts. What about you? 
I resonate with that idea of feeling feeling damned about it if we get it wrong. Uh, I do think there's a bit of fear of rejection. Right. And if you look at it in a larger scheme, we'd rather have someone else feel rejected than us be rejected by the community that quote unquote affirms our belief. Yeah. Now, doesn't that, what you just said, doesn't that sound a lot like what the pe- the people at Jesus's time must have felt? Like it, it just sounds like they would rather see someone else rejected and condemned than take that for themselves. I mean, not to get super deep about it, but it sounds a lot like that to me. Sure. And I think too, you know, to, to be holistic about this, there are some churches who are stepping into the gap of the uncomfortable and trying to figure out how to be inclusive as churches, but also preach what they believe their conviction is. But I feel like they're, you know, to, to go back to that word damned, I feel like they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. Absolutely. If they do, church culture then looks around and says, you're doing something wrong. And if they do, the world then looks at them and and then says, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, is that, is that an accurate depiction that, that you kind of can't win on this issue as far as culture then comes into play? Yeah, I mean, there's there's rejection and there's condemnation from both sides. I think you nailed it right there. I think Christians that either have any viewpoint, but particularly about this one, that is counter to maybe even the community that they're a part of or people that they've known for a long time. Um, or just what they've always understood the the church to publicly believe. They fear engaging and they fear serving because of what they expect the reaction to be. I think you said something about standing in the gap. And I think of Psalm 106, God, God says that he, he didn't destroy the land. He didn't destroy Israel because Moses stood in the gap for the people. Ezekiel 22 says, God sought someone to stand in the gap and found no one. So he poured out his wrath like God is looking for people that will be a bridge between two opposing forces between, yeah, just two completely counter ideas, counter people groups. I think God desires his people, his church to bridge that gap between the powerful and the powerless. I think the church is called to be in that gap. I think we're called to stand in the gap between the rich and the poor. When I think of, the communion table, you have this, this moment, you have this celebration where we remember the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to this meal, and he, he never sets a condition on, you have to make a certain amount of money. You have to believe this, that, and the third. He never sets any conditions on status or class or ideas or viewpoints on any hot button issues. He says, come and eat. And this, we have this image of, of a meal being shared with, between people that would never otherwise be at a table together. To me, that is the image of the gospel, and that is the image of what the church ought to be. We are a place where people that have differing viewpoints in, in our world would otherwise be deemed as enemies of one another. We can be together by the grace of God. We can call each other brother and sister. Our world says that you can only be my friend if you voted for the same president that I did. You could, we can only be in relationship with one another if we make a similar amount of money and we have houses in the same neighborhood. But the communion table removes all of those separations. 
the, the gospel does that for us. And so if we have this, this sentiment where if you do something that Christians don't do, quote unquote, right, then you're vilified by the Christians. And then if you're a Christian, well, you have to remember that the world hates you by default. Like, <laughs> we, I think we, we also get too, too worried about being loved by the world. And that is a promise that God never made us that we would be loved by the world. You think of Peter's letters to the church. In Second Peter, he writes to a church in exile. They are an exiled people in their country. Um, we have churches around the world now that are churches in exile, that are vilified by every cultural force that exists in that area. But that kind of comes with the territory, right? Like following Jesus, we have to be ready to be hated by the world. And so we have to accept that calling. I think we, we have to be okay being hated by the world. And I think on the opposite side, there are some certain times you have to act, you have to move that you have to be okay with some people that are Christians hating you for a season, for a moment, because you know what you're doing, how you're loving, how you're serving is what God's called you to do. And so the way I see it, when we don't bridge the gap between, like I said, the powerful and the powerless, the rich and the poor, the gay and the churchgoer. I mean, that's, those are almost the extremes we have at this point today. If, we're, if the church is not bridging that gap, I think we're actually acting against our calling. God is looking for someone to stand in the gap for his people. And I think that someone today is the church of, of Christ on this earth. And if we don't stand for them and, and bridge between people groups that would otherwise hate each other and everything that they believe and understand about life is contradictory. We have to represent this, this perspective where in, in this, in this setting at this table with this Christ, we can be brother and sister. And I think that not, not to be like hippy dippy, let's all hold hands. But I think the church needs can, can learn a bit there that we ought to be a force in our culture today that brings people together that otherwise would never be together. Because I think that's the beauty of the gospel. People brought together that would never be otherwise. As we bring our time to a close, what's something that you think we could do as a church to move in a more positive direction on this issue of balancing tension that we experience standing in the gap. I mean, what would be a first step if, if someone listening wanted to begin that process? Yeah, it's, I think the, the easiest, but also probably the hardest one, I'd say at least the most obvious is I really think we could be better listeners. Like we already talked about when, when you're so convinced that your way is correct, your way is right. It's really hard in any setting to listen to anything otherwise. I mean, it's just counter to our nature. And so I think particularly with this issue, and again, speaking from a straight man perspective, I, I don't, I can't speak a ton about the experiences of a gay man or a gay woman in my city, but I can listen to what their experiences are directly from them. If I give them the chance, I, I think we were pretty quick to, like I said earlier as well, make a Christian corner for ourselves where we don't expose ourselves. We don't engage people that we know we have these disagreements with. And so it's, it's easy to live life 
when all you have to do is go to work, go home, and then interact with the people that you already know, believe everything you believe. But I think if we listen and then if we step out and engage this culture more directly, I think it will move us. It will challenge us. If we share life with them, if we share meals with them, if we work, if we play with them, like I I think there's a lot to be learned if we're simply present, if we engage without a fear, without a, a sense of judgment that is so obvious at times in these interactions. It's a great word, man. Thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show. If people wanted to connect with you, how could they do that online? Sure. Uh, all of my social medias are my name. So Brandon Eloy, no spaces, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's awesome, man. And we'll make sure we list all that in the show notes. But thanks so much for making the time to be on the show. Appreciate it, Joey. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic we talked about today, maybe your experience and ways that we can continue to create that community that we are creating here on The Dismantle. You can visit us at dismantlepod.com. You can visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dismantlepod. We are on Instagram and Facebook, and you can also email us at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.